Oh, I'm in. Okay. Good morning. My name is Kyle. Uh, as Kim said, I'm one of the pastors with Mariners Church, and uh, I get the privilege of leading this staff in this community in this season of transition. For some of you who are like, what? We're in a season of transition? If you're new, the answer is yes. I mean, we're kind of always in a state of transition. But for us as a community, we're looking for a new lead pastor and who God wants to come and lead this community into the future. And so I want to give you guys a little bit of an update on that. Some of you um, have sent me lots of, of names and suggestions, which is great. I invited that in an email I sent to you about six weeks ago. Some of you are going, what? You sent an email to us? Yes. Remember that whole compass thing that Kim was talking about? That's the way we connect with you guys. So if, if you want that kind of information from us, that's a great place to get it. Um, and so in this past few months, we have talked to uh, about 10 people, and we've had very in-depth conversations with two. And the most important thing we're looking for at this point is we believe God is writing a bigger story than just our church or even Mariner's churches or even Orange County in terms of his church. And so we're looking for the right person, that it's the right time for them and for us, and it's the right circumstance for both their church and for us. And uh, at this point, for both the people we had very intense conversations with, it's either not the right person or it's not the right time and season. So we're going to continue looking at the list, which we still have. The great thing is... Uh, we have a lot of people contacting us, which is fun. It's fun to be part of a story where people are going, hey, I hear you're looking for somebody. Maybe I'm that person, which is pretty cool. Uh, Francis Chan said no, just in case you're wondering. Somebody actually said, hey, what about Francis in one of these emails? And I said, that's great. So, but he's in San Francisco, and he's doing great. He doesn't want to come back to Orange County. All that to say, what can you expect? What you can expect is everything that who we are and what we're about, which is we gather every single weekend, we center our hearts and our lives around God's word. And we're going to do that in the context of worship and in teaching. Uh, you'll get to hear from Mariner's pastors. We're going to continue getting great guest teachers. You guys have enjoyed Rick McKinley and Bob Goff and Jim Burns and Doug Fields. And all those guys are excited about the story God's writing. And even Fields this week was like, hey, Kyle, I love what God's doing in that community. You know, feel free to use me. So it's fun to be a part of a church that God wants people to be a part of. Uh, the second thing is, in addition to weekends, we know that this is not a destination, right, for us. It's just part of our journey where we recalibrate our hearts and our lives around God's word. And so we're going to come and we're going to get filled up on the weekends and we're going to move out into community. And we do that through Rooted and community and serving together. And we're going to believe that as God continues to change and shape our hearts and lives, he is inviting us into a journey where we get to change the world around us. And so we invite you guys into that. Um, your part in this is to continue to pray. And to trust um, that God is writing a big story and God cares. And he absolutely already has the person picked out. It's just a matter of our um, willingness to trust him with that journey in terms of his timing and in his way. So this morning, let's pray together. Uh, close your eyes and um, let's just acknowledge this story. God, we thank you for who you are. And um, we believe everything that we've been singing this morning even that you are good and that you're faithful and that your power is beyond uh, all the powers that exist in this world. That your love is something we will never fully even comprehend or understand and that you can be trusted. And so this morning as a community, we thank you that you love your church. You love us as individuals as your church. You love the community of your church. And so we believe, God, that you have somebody um, picked out exactly who we need to lead us into the future. We pray that you would continue to open doors and close them as you see fit. And God, we pray that even in this season, 
We believe and acknowledge that you are continuing to speak and lead and guide. You are changing us. You are shaping us. You want to continue to restore us back to the way you originally designed us to be. And so we thank you for the opportunity to come before you as a church and as a community to become all that you're inviting us to become and to change the world around us, to not just hoard your love and your kindness and your grace and your gentleness for ourselves, but God, to just be conduits of who you are. We thank you and we pray and believe that you are going to continue to do that even in our lives this morning. And we thank you and we pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're continuing today in a series called Uncontrollable. Um, Today we're looking at uncontrollable power, which is something that is not far from us at any given time in this culture, right? I mean, power is everywhere, and it's something that you see and everybody's constantly trying to get. I mean, we're in this season of politics and elections, and you see everybody talking about power and who's going to have it and who should have it and why. We look at movies. We look at books. What are the things that sell? Power, quests for power, superheroes, superpowers, the Hunger Games, people overthrowing power to take control. It's everywhere, and it's subtle. And then, perhaps, the single greatest gift of controlling power in America, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the remote control. Yeah, right? I mean, come on, let's be real honest. You guys, guys, I'm old enough to remember the days these didn't exist, and you'd have to go punch buttons on TVs and stuff, right? Some of you are like, what? There was buttons on TVs? Yes, there was buttons on TVs. This happens to be one of those real fancy universal remotes, right, where you just push one button and everything happens. The problem is it doesn't always work that way. You push a button, and it seems to happen more frequently with my wife. I'm just saying. She knows this to be true. But I think there's something genetic, men, women, about these things. I think they were designed for men. Let's just be real honest. Amen? At least in my house. Okay, but like she'll push buttons and I get texts and phone calls going, I don't get it. Like I can hear stuff, I don't see anything. I can see things, I don't hear anything. I want to watch a movie and nothing's happening. Anybody ever get those calls, texts, frustrations? Right, it's crazy. This morning I got a text because I took this. So my family gets up and, like, well, they can't do anything. Like, what happened? The world stopped because they can't control the power. It's crazy. But it's interesting. It's, it's not just the small stuff. It's the big stuff. I mean, we start, we head out into the working world, and, and what happens? We start looking for power and influence. Because if I just had, just had that position right in front of me, life would be so much better. We do it with stuff. Like, I'm, I'm one possession away from happiness. If I just had that... Money. Have you ever heard somebody say, I have too much money? I wish I could get rid of some of this money. I mean, billionaires are still doing what? Looking for more. Because somehow it's going to give them power. We're looking, and somehow we buy into the thing that this is going to be my way. If I can have power and control it in my way, I'm going to be more comfortable and I'm going to be more happy in life. But at the same time, we all know that's not true. And we all know it. Why? Because the market crashes. And what happens? We're out of control. We lose our jobs. And what happens? Oh my gosh, I'm not as in control as I thought. A relationship blows up that you didn't see coming. Oh, wow. I don't have control. You see, we're just one thing away from realizing we're not as in control as we think we are. And so this constant power struggle and quest puts us in a place, really, that we're building lies into our lives. 
We're building our lives on these empty things, thinking that this is the formula for success and for power and for happiness and for everything we want. But then it just takes one thing, and we realize, maybe I don't have all the power. Maybe I don't have all the control. Maybe this isn't what's supposed to make me comfortable and happy and satisfied and successful in life. And the danger with this clutching and grabbing for power is that we want to do that same thing in our relationship with God and Jesus. We think that the way we try to achieve power through possessions or through money or through success in life is the same thing we do with God. Wow, that, that looks amazing. This Jesus thing, that God power, I'm going to grab a hold of that. I need a little Jesus in my life too. But that's just the problem. We don't need a little Jesus. We need all of who he is in our lives. And that's the invitation that God gives us. Turn to Acts 19. We're going to start in verse 8. Today we're going to look and see and discover and be reminded of how dangerous it is to try and control the uncontrollable power that exists in the name of Jesus. Acts 19, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. There's some people that are more than willing to give one to you. Every single week as you come in, there's always Bibles in the back. You can grab one or we will deliver them to you, whatever you see. Acts 19, verse 8. It starts, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. Okay, what's the way? You're in church. The safest answer is yes. Jesus and his followers, the way. So Paul did what? He left them. He took the disciples with him, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, the birthplace of Tyrannosaurus Rex. I mean, yeah, Jesus, no. I don't know that that's true. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And watch this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Okay, this is amazing. Think about this. This is Paul. This is an ordinary guy, not Jesus. And just things that had touched him, they would take somewhere and people would be cured. They would be healed and it would cast away evil spirits. They would run because of the power. Now, whose power was it? Was it about Paul? Jesus, that's right, you're in church. It's the power of? Right, because what do we know about Paul? Let's remember his story. Paul's original name was? Saul. This room's very productive this morning so far. (laughs) Paul's original name was Saul. Paul, he describes his journey a lot through all of his teachings in the New Testament. He was like the chief of the Jews. He's like if anyone can claim anything, it would be me. I am the Jew of all Jews. I was born a Jew, raised in a Jewish family. I knew all the laws, all the decrees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I have the right story. I'm the wisest. I behaved correctly. I followed all the commandments. I'd done everything I needed to do. But what happened? Paul had an encounter with the power of Jesus. And God's power came into his life in an extremely profound way. Road to Damascus, struck it blind, goes away, and Paul realizes, it's not my power, it's God's power. 
changes his name from Saul to Paul. Good job. It's like this is the Saul room, this is the Paul room. That's what happens. Changes his name. And then what happens? He becomes this Jesus-only guy. And we see it in his writings. He starts early on in his journey by saying, oh, I'm probably one of the worst of the 12 apostles. And then he says, man, I'm probably one of the worst of all believers. By the end of his journey, he's writing, I am the chief of all sinners. I am the most broken, desperate man on the planet. That's the way he describes himself. And everywhere he goes, he says, I am coming for one thing, and it's what we see lived out in this passage, and that is to preach, to teach, and to show, and to demonstrate Christ. Christ crucified. That is all I care about. So we see this lived out. It is the power of Jesus in and through the life of Saul because he is a Jesus-only guy committed to serving and teaching and showing and demonstrating the power of God, to building churches, to creating disciples, to teaching every day, and to changing the world through the power of God. We see that celebrated. This is setting us up for a contrast with these next verses. Starting in verse 13, let's see what happens. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, say that five times fast, a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answers them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Isn't this crazy? Isn't this one of those passages in the Bible you go, huh? Why is this here? What is happening? What is this for? You know, so here's some things we need to understand. In that day, in the ancient world, there's a hierarchy to the power of the names in the spirit world. Okay? That's just the way things worked. And what you have here is you can clearly see the highest name in the spirit world is Jesus. The evil spirit answers them and says what? Jesus I know. Paul I've heard about. Who are you? Because they're running around. He's just identifying them as fake and fraud. So what do they do? They're found out. And this guy jumps on the seven of them, gives them a beat down, opens a can of you know what, on these guys. They run away naked, bleeding, screaming, begging for their lives. Why is this? Remember two weeks ago when we started the series, we talked about the fact that God would rather be with those who fear him than those who want to use him. God would rather be with those who fear him than those who want to manipulate and use him. Paul, fearing God. Constantly elevating his story, putting Jesus' name in the highest place. These people clearly doing what? Looking to manipulate and use the name of Jesus to their own benefit. Invoking the name. The uncontrollable name and power of God will not be misused without a total submission and surrender to the God who distributes that power through his son Jesus. That is just the way it works. And we see this misuse of power, it just creeps subtly into our lives even today. We see where we're misusing the power and name of God. We think it's transferable somehow, right? 
We see it in the way that sometimes you talk to people about like a spiritual heritage. And, hey, how are you with God? And what's going on with you and Jesus? And you'll hear some answers like, well, my family's, uh, you know, amazing. My parents were awesome. And they took me to church when I was a kid. And I went to Sunday school every week and I knew all about God. And it's like, that's great for them. What about you? You'll hear it in the context of marriage. One of the spouses, hey, how's your journey with Jesus going? Well, you know what's really great? My spouse, you know, they go to Bible studies and church and they're learning a ton and I feel like it's just shaping our family in, in a powerful way. Well, that's great, but what about you? Don't misuse the name or the power of Jesus and think that just it's going to cover some family thing. God's very interested in a personal journey with you and making sure his power gets lived out in your life and in your journey. We do this in the context of the way we live out our journey with God, even personally sometimes. We tend to think that there's some kind of if-then relationship with God. You know, it's like, for me, one of the contexts is prayer. I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me, very easy for me to sort of feel like I, I slide into a space of manipulating God. So I'll pray, and instead of just knowing and acknowledging right off the get-go that, God, you already know everything that I'm about ready to say. You know every circumstance. You know every detail. You know every condition. I'll inform God of all that's happening in my life, and then I'll say, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to show up like this. I need you to show up in this way. I need you to show up in this time, and here's how I need you to do it, and here's the pathway. God, can you make that happen? That's misusing the name and the power of God. We do it in our journey. We show up at church. God, I I came to church. I've been to church every week. How is this happening to me? God, I'm giving. Do you see this? Check check this out. I'm serving. I'm going to go tutor some kids and do something nice. God, did you see the, the meal I bought for the homeless guy? Why is this? That's misusing the name and the power of God. That's manipulating. It's an if then kind of thing. And God's going, I won't do that. You can't control what is uncontrollable. You can't try and make it yours. It's not about your benefit. It's about the glory of God and about his name and his story being proclaimed in the world. So the story continues on. You see the contrast between fear and manipulation. In verse 17, let's see what happens. When this became known, when this, the beatdown of the guys, became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus... They were all seized with what? Fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and they openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. Okay, now a little background about Ephesus. Some of this you guys will remember. Ephesus in its day was the center and the hub of power, of economic power. It was a trade country. Everybody came and went through Ephesus, okay, of education. It was the center of wisdom and everything. It was the center of magic and sorcery. It was the center of power for everything in that day, okay? And the other interesting thing is in this day, You know, we hear the word sorcery or magic or something like that, and to us today, we start going, whoa, that's weird. Like, they must be a bunch of weirdos. You know, that's kind of way on the fringe for us. But in this day, magic and sorcery and the scrolls they talked about were just a normal part of life that they would base 
some of their beliefs on, and they just incorporated it into their journey. And so what happens here then is when they realized what they had done, what they had done is taken some normal things of life, and they had placed their trust in those. It was a way to write their own story and then just add the power of Jesus to it. And so what did they do? They come and they publicly confess and they burn these scrolls. 50,000 drachmas. What's that mean? A drachma was a, a silver coin that was worth about one day's wages. Okay, so if you do the math, 50,000 based on working days, it's about 160 years worth of income. So just do some math in your head real quick. Think about your journey right now, your income, times 160. It's what they burned It's what they confessed and burned in their lives. And I don't know about you, one of the first places I go is, today in my life, even if God pointed something like that out to me, and I needed to do it, I would go, God, do you see what this is worth? We should keep this or sell it or something, and then what I'll do is I'll give it all to the poor. Or I'll use it and just, you know, help people out with it. But the problem is, is, I don't know about you, But with me, the danger of that is if I just try and stuff it away somewhere and I'm moving through life and all of a sudden I lose my job or all of a sudden a relationship blows up or all of a sudden my health goes sideways, the first place I'd be tempted to grab is that. It would not be the power of Jesus. It would be the normal everyday things that I have built in my life or I thought that I had built in my life. And so these people do the heroic, courageous thing and they say, we can't even see this anymore. We have to burn it publicly. And they make a statement and they say, we are going to turn loose of the normal everyday things in our lives that we are trusting and that we are basing our power and our strength on. And we are going to turn and become Jesus-only people. And these are believers. These are believers coming. These are not just the worldly people. These are believers, people that know the story. Those are the ones that led the charge in terms of coming forward and acknowledging this journey and saying, it will be about Jesus only. What is it that we allow to compete with the power of Jesus in our lives today? Because Ephesus is just like Orange County. Anytime you see Ephesians or Ephesus in the Bible, pay lots of attention. Because think about Orange County. It's a center of culture of economics, of education. It defines so many things, not just for America, but for the world. What are the things that we allow to compete with the power of Jesus that we normalize? The same things. Our education, our degrees, our relationships, our jobs. You know, some of us we, we try lots of different paths of spiritual renewal and positive thinking and all those things. And we just mix a little Jesus in with all of that. And that's the way we're supposed to live, right? Yeah, I got this, but I got to hold all this too. And clearly God's invitation is to say no. You don't get to create your own version of Christianity. You have to publicly confess and burn all of that and say, I will trust in the power and in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. Because when we start to mix in a little Jesus with everything we have, even in the good stuff, what it is is legalism. And we become just like the Pharisees. 
We say, I've got it. I'm even going to structure my spiritual journey around the stuff that I know I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to charge down this path. And I'm going to even compare and, and judge and help other people where they're at in their journey too. And say, this is the way you're supposed to behave and this is what it looks like. And then we're going to do this and mix God in here. And he's going, no, you don't get to do that. You have to trust and depend exclusively on the power of Jesus changing your life. And the problem is, in our lives, the space we want to create for God's power is often pretty small. And God's like, I want to be in all of it. I don't just want a piece of it. But what we tend to do is, God, I'm going to give you 10%. And this is all good, normal, behavioral even kind of stuff. But I'm going to trust on my story and my power and my strength in this, and I'm going to just, I'm going to give you this 10%. Until what? Until we lose our job. And then it's like, oh my gosh, God, I need you to cover like 40% now. I'm, I'm more desperate for you. And then we get a job and it's like, cool, God, you're back to like 10%. And then all of a sudden the relationship blows up. Or we blow our life out somehow and it's like, God, I, I need like 70% of you now. And God's like, Really? That's not what this is about. You don't get to decide and waver and go back and forth and manipulate the uncontrollable power of my name. Because what you're doing is you're confining yourself in these normal things of life that actually form a prison around you. And then you don't actually even get to experience the beauty of a relationship that I've designed for you about freedom and about joy. You just minimize it. And you reduce it to something small. And he's like, I have something so much bigger for you. We get a glimpse of it. Flip over to Ephesians. Remember Ephesians. These are our prayers. This is Paul's prayer for Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what God wants for us with his power. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in an order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great, what? Power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him in his right hands in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Every name that is invoked. Jesus' name is above it all, including yours. Including yours. And any name that you want to rest against. The name of Jesus is higher. He's saying, I want you to understand this. Why? There's great promises in here. The hope to which he has called you. This hope is not a small hope. It's not like, oh man, I, I hope I make it through today. Man, I hope I get the job. Man, I hope I get this. Man, it's not some small, safe, temporary hope. The hope to which he has called you is what? It's peace with God. Through Jesus. He's saying the hope to which I've called you is not temporary. It is eternal. It's a hope that restores relationship back to the way God originally designed it for you to be. It's not a small temporary thing on a day-to-day -day basis. It is eternal from before you ever knew he existed. That's a big hope. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 
Guys, he's saying, I want you to understand your heritage. I want you to know that when you read the Bible, when we read these stories, this is your story. This is our legacy of faith lived out. It is supposed to give you courage. And when we come and sit in this room every single week together, when we gather as believers, two or three in our houses, when we gather in our rooted groups, when we gather in our life groups, when we go serve together, we are experiencing the riches of a glorious inheritance that's called the church. And we have to experience that in the context. For extra credit, read Hebrews 11 and 12. It is a fascinating, beautiful, encouraging passage about this legacy of faith that will absolutely encourage you in your journey. The riches of a glorious inheritance of God's people. That's what we get to walk in right now. And then the incomparably great power for those of us who believe. The power that is the same, the same as the strength that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Just let that sink in. The power that raised Christ from the dead. That changed everything for all eternity. That forgave sins forever, for everyone. That allowed each one of us to be and experience the hope of a relationship with God, our creator, and our designer. The power that takes dead things and makes them alive. The power that restores things that are broken. The power that reconciles for eternity, that's power. That is not some small little Jesus power that we mix into our life. That's a power worth totally surrendering a life to. That's a power that can change our lives. And that's a power that lives in and through us that we get to change the world around us. That's the power that we base this church on. It's what we experience, this prayer, in the context of Rooted in Life groups, connecting with God and the hope he has for you, connecting with the church and the riches of a glorious inheritance, of belonging, and connecting with your purpose, the power of the Holy Spirit lived in and through your life to other people, about building churches, making disciples that change the world. What Paul was doing, it's what we get to do and live out today. But we don't get to do this when we just manipulate and use and mix in. This only happens when we say, I'm going to burn publicly the things in my life that need to burn in order to take hold exclusively of the power of Jesus and live for his name above every other name. Look at Acts 19, the last verse of this passage we're looking at, verse 20. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In what way? In this way, Paul's teaching, relying exclusively on the name and the power of Jesus, created a public confession, an acknowledgement of places where they were holding to even good and normal things in their life and mixing Jesus in to a place of true repentance where they burned publicly those things. And what happens as a result of that dangerous moment? The word of the Lord spread widely, and it actually grew in power. Through confession and honesty and repentance, 
the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. You see, in that moment of confession, we know what that feels like. We know what that looks like. It's a dangerous moment. But in that moment, when we feel most out of control, Jesus is most in control. That's the space that God is inviting us to live in all the time, every day. Because that's how the name of the Lord grows and spreads in power in and through our lives and in the world around us. So the surprise is that this is all done in honesty and confession. And that seems incredibly scary to us. Nobody really wants to be honest. Nobody really wants or likes the idea of confession. It's not fun, but it's necessary. Because it's the way we truly get everything that we really want in life. They did a study on community and on honesty. And they were talking and they said, hey, talk to us about love. And you know what everybody talked about? Heartbreak. They said, talk to us about belonging. And everybody talked about being excluded. They said, talk to us about connection. And everybody talked to us about being alone and disconnected. You see, this fear of coming clean and coming out of hiding and stepping out of this prison and acknowledging these things in our lives that we hold to, the fear of that, we live in that. And it constantly is the thing we talk about instead of the beauty that exists on the other side of this moment. Just this past week, I was here and I was hanging with Tim Keller, uh, one of the pastors here, and, and we were talking and a guy came in. And, you know, he was kind of limping and it was tough. You could go, man, he's having a hard time walking. And he came in and he comes to churches Why lots of people show up at churches. And he goes, man, I'm in a tough place and I'm wondering if you guys can help me out. And Tim's like, yeah, sure, probably. What's, but who are you? What's your story? What's going on? And he's like, well, I'm on disability, and so I don't have a job. I can't work because of my knee and everything going on. And he's like, I lost my wife about a year ago. And he said, and, and I've also been diagnosed with a mental disorder. And he goes, so I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to get through and how I'm going to contribute. And I, So they had a conversation for about 20, 30 minutes, and Tim walked him out. And the guy turns around and he just looks at Tim and he goes, do you like me? And Tim just kind of said, well, yeah, you seem like a great guy. It just seems like you're battling through a lot of things right now. And the guy says, you know, I've never told anybody about my mental disorder because I was always so afraid that I wouldn't be enough, that people would judge me, that they'd reject me. And so he just leans in and gives Tim a big hug. Do you like me? I mean, isn't that the question we all ask? Isn't that the question that's spinning around in the back of our heads, even with God? I mean, so often aren't we kind of like, God, do you like me? Because we're afraid of not being enough not being valuable. It's not being lovable. It's not being bright enough or smart enough. Somehow we give other people that power and that control in our life. And Jesus says, what you're really looking for, belonging, community, freedom, joy, can only be restored 
through my name and through my power and through total surrender of control and acknowledging that. For me, just a week ago, uh, I was in a meeting. I was leading it, doing a devotional. Just lots of qualities and characteristics that we wanted to become in this season. I said, hey, grab a hold of one that you feel like God's saying to you. And the one that he spoke to me about was gentleness. And I don't know about you, but in my journey, it's always pretty dangerous what you put in front of God, whether it's patience or gentleness, because he never just gives me that. He gives me lots of situations to help me become what he wants me to become in that. And so not three days later, I'm with my family. And, um, you know, my story is, is I grew up and, and for me, I thought I had to, you know, the do you like me thing with God was based on me trying to earn his favor and his love. And so I, growing up in the church, I always thought I had to behave perfectly, that that was going to earn me more love and more value in his kingdom. And that's transposed into lots of places in my life where I feel like I have to earn power and position and my voice has to be heard. And so I have an intensity to me that can just fire up. And sadly, most of the times where that fires up is with my family. So I'm hanging with them a few days later, and I have three kids, uh, two boys and a girl, Cade and Tate and Cozy, and uh, nine and eight and six. And so Tate, my youngest son, is awesome. He, uh, he experiences life. Like, he doesn't watch life happen. Like, he's the kid who dives, like, headfirst into all of it and just wants to experience everything. And he loves people, and he's a great friend. But part of that energy can sometimes be a little hard to contain. <laughs> and uh, from what I've heard, I was kind of similar to that as a kid. So my mom always tells me, you get what you are. Um, so, you know, Tate, my day off is Monday, and it's, it's been hot. And so we're trying to, we're outside for as long as we can be, but then we're inside and we're dying. And he gets inside, and he's all over the map. And, you know, he's just doing stuff that, you know, we have rules. It's like, don't climb over the walls. Don't jump around the furniture. Don't throw balls in the house. Like, all that stuff, right? And about every 10 minutes, it's Tate. What are you doing? Don't climb over the walls. Tate, don't write on the walls. You know, Tate, don't throw the, Tate, you know better. You know, and so I start just applying this shame and this guilt through my intensity. Because I'm thinking I have to grab and control the authority of this house. Right? I got to find my value and significance in this. And finally, it's getting late and he's blown past his bedtime. And I'm just like, Tate, take a shower. Do what you're supposed to do. And just, it just crushed him. And so he goes in his room, and he did what he needed to do. But, you know, my wife comes in and goes, I think you need to go talk to Tate. And I go, okay. So I go in there, and, you know, he's just kind of curled up sitting on his bed. And I, at first, try to pretend like nothing happened. Hey, buddy, what's going on, you know? Because <laughs> that works. Um, you know, and, and the other thing Tate is is wonderfully honest. And he just goes, Dad, it makes me sad when you yell at me. And his eyes just well up, and, and I'm like, son, I am so sorry. And I just confessed. I said, you know, I don't want to be that. I said, and I told him, I said, just a few days ago, God said, hey, I want to work on gentleness in your life. And I said, and what does God do? And I'm sorry you had to do that. And I said, will you forgive me? And he's like, I forgive you. I forgive you from an eight-year-old. And in that moment, everything I really want was realized, right? We have a big hug. I feel more powerful and loved than I ever did. I feel belonging 
we felt community and connected. There was total honesty in the sadness and in the pain of confessing something that just is part of my life because I believed it to be normal, and it's just not. And I was relying on my power instead of on the power of Jesus. So what is it for you this morning? Where's the place in your life? What are the things you've been holding to maybe as normal and giving power to? And this morning, Jesus is inviting you into something. He's inviting you into the dangerous place of confessing those things and repenting from those things and walking differently by His power and by His strength. Because what He's inviting you into is what you really want, which is to be free. Which is to move out of the prison of things that hold us, even the good stuff of life, into a life where we get to see the amazing and the miraculous take place because of the power of Jesus. Where we get to experience belonging and community and love. Where we don't have to fear the question, do you like me? Because we know what's on the other side of it is, like you, I love you. I created you. I designed you. And I want to restore and take back all of what the world has stolen from you. Just let me do it with my power. Just close your eyes if you would for a moment. Just reflect and listen to God. God speaks, what is it that you need to confess and and burn publicly today so that God's power exclusively can work in and through your life? Father, we've been reflecting on the truth of who you are. That you relentlessly pursue us with your love and with your grace and with your forgiveness and with your compassion. And you do that, God, to restore and to heal and to mend and to take back the space that the world has stolen from us and that we've even empowered the world to steal from us. And God, we believe that you want to do that in our hearts and in our lives this morning. I'm going to invite you, if God is speaking specifically to you about something in your life that he wants you to turn loose of and trust his power exclusively, I'm going to invite you just to stand right where you're at so we can pray for you. this is you, and God is inviting you to trust his power today, and there's something you need to confess and publicly burn this morning, we will do that together in community. Just stand right where you're at. Word of the Lord 
spread widely and grew in power because of the humble confession of his people. If you came with or you are just close to one of these folks, would you move with them and just stand next to them or put your hand on their shoulder? But let's live this moment out in the context of community and belonging. There should be nobody standing alone, even if you don't know them. You can be with them. Father, this morning, these are your children. And I believe that you are smiling over them. I believe that your spirit is whispering to their hearts and reminding them that they are your loved children. And as they stand to publicly confess and to burn the things that they've given power to in their lives, God, we believe that today you are burning those. We believe that they will walk out with a renewed sense of freedom that they do not have to hide. But God, they can move forward with a sense of your power and your strength and your name being held higher than any other name in their lives. God, I pray this morning that you would encourage each one of them specifically through your voice and in the context of community. Because God, as we see, this moment is not just about them. It is about what you want to do in and through their families and their friends and their neighbors and this church and this county. So thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness and for freedom and for joy and for peace and for rest and for your power filling these lives and their minds and guarding their hearts. And we pray this. In the power of your name, Jesus, amen. Would you all stand and let's worship together?